I would love to live alone. You want to live in Hartford? No. No, nobody no. wants to Hartford live in stinky. Hartford. Hartford is stinky. <laughs> Hartford is stinky. I walk out of my apartment, like into my hallway, and it's just cigarette smoke. Hello and welcome back to the Gay Ergos podcast. This evening I had smiley fries and dino nuggies for dinner. You didn't even say your name. <laughs> Do I need to? Hello and welcome back to the Gay Ergos podcast. My name is Lizzie and this evening I had smiley fries and dino nuggies for dinner. After I went to hot yoga. You didn't say your name. Yes, I did. <laughs> 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 I, I canceled. I, Edit her out. <laughs> We're canceling. Cancel the pod. And my name's Kiro Sullivan, and I don't have any of the answers to anything. <laughs> and that's finals week for you. <laughs> but with us today is a wonderful friend, a, I don't even know, somebody who will climb a mountain 13 times with you and only complain once or twice. I don't actually remember a hater of Connecticut, a badass athlete, and it's it's Meg Combs. Welcome to the pod, Meg. Woo, welcome, Meg. Chiming in from beautiful, stinky Hartford, Connecticut. Yes, I do love my apartment. It's the only good thing about the whole state, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are, we're an anti-Connecticut space. Um, so sorry to anyone out there that that hurts, but I'm really- I personally- <laughs> can't be that's where no my headquarters is for everyone and i am not a safe space for anyone from connecticut except for my athletes but <laughs> and my clients oh shit <laughs> we have we can edit everything so you see i think I'm i'll leave that in but this is a psa meg to meg's employers who are for sure definitely not listening to a gay rowing podcast um, sure. don't fire her. I mean, if you like Connecticut, we got some. I would love to have a good conversation with you about the highway system is just a nightmare. But everyone I've met from Connecticut is lovely. I don't hold it against you. It's just the state itself. My God, Binky. it's the bad place. Yeah, although I do uh, some work there, so I, I gotta give yeah. a little love. Meg, I would love to hear how you how you ended up in Connecticut. And what, what is the journey that got you to where you're at now? Whatever you're willing to share. Tell us, tell us your origin road story. Well, in 1990, I was born in Tallahassee. <laughs> um, I, so I went through my last two years of college in uh, Philadelphia uh, for journalism. Um, and before I went, to, before I transferred to Temple, I um, did a year of volunteer through City Year. This will matter later. <laughs> I worked with middle school students and specifically did a lot of social emotional coaching and got really um, excited about and involved in activism and like the mental health spaces through that. And then after that, I was very inspired by the North Philadelphia community and also just like walking past the Schuylkill River every day to walk on to the Temple rowing team um, and obviously transfer to Temple. And I did uh, that for two years, all during the pandemic. And um, still during the pandemic, I was trying to get a job, any job post-college, and uh, got a coaching job at a little place called Central Connecticut Rowing in Middletown, Connecticut, which was an awful job. 
in a lot of ways, but I did find out that I love coaching. I found out also that I hate Connecticut, but I'm still here. Um, and then I uh, also was able to get a job at a mental health organization for youth battling with substance abuse issues, which is very taxing and is definitely not a calling. And also got a job as a um, novice boys rowing coach at Farmington High School, which actually might be a little bit more of a calling. So that's that's how I got here. And also in two months time, I will be moving to Boston to be a fellow with at the IRL at CRI. So she moves. That's so exciting. I didn't know that. I'll see you so much. Yeah. <laughs> I am so thrilled for your journey. Meg, if it isn't abundantly clear, Meg and I have known each other for what feels like our entire lives, but it's actually only been like two years. You guys both rode together at Temple though, right? No, I Mm -hmm. rode with Alex. Yeah, no. So, so Meg and I never had crossover at Temple. Actually, I graduated right before she got there, but she had crossover with Alex, my partner. So we just got looped in. She, her, and Alex got tight, which immediately made me, me and Meg and I, ooh, grammar. Meg and I become friends, and we kind of quickly realized that we are the same breed of crazy. I think we really just liked going head to head stuff. We were competitors before we were friends. Yeah. <laughs> like during the pandemic, when like nothing was going on. <laughs> yeah, I just liked having somebody who would be like, I can run more than you, and she could. Fair enough. Got to keep the competitive edge going. Yeah, we we did just talk about that in our past podcast. So hey, you got to find it where you can. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. Wow. So wow, middle school boy? No, high school boys. Did I say middle school? No, I think I just oh, wrongfully no. said it. But I think you're our first boys rowing coach. I love them. I I'm a former boys rowing coach. I am an advocate for coaching boys. You know why? You know why? Because I can say such stupid shit to them. And this is going to tie in later, okay? Because I am very, very, very neurodivergent. So some of the things that come out of my mouth are just not sensible. Um, (laughs) But they forgive it in a way that I don't think any other subset of the human population would. (laughs) So as I'm learning how to be a more skilled coach, 14-year-old boys are a very forgiving group, believe it or not. They are. I I coached Boston Latin School, the varsity boys, for like three years. And you know what I will say, though? High school boys and college girls are very similar in a lot of ways. I think that once you're in college, you have the, like, for a girl, you have the ability to suddenly be an idiot. Because I think, yes. like, in, in high school, like, t- teenage girls are trying so hard to be smart. And then they get out of that space. And especially if they're like, in college athletics they're like oh I'm a jock or they're like I'm really pretty and I'm good at my sport and I can be silly and I can arm wrestle any guy who tries to flirt with me that's the vibe that I always get from yes yes I've I've felt a lot of crossover and I think it actually helped my transition into coaching collegiate women (laughs) that I coached high school boys for so long Um, And Meg, so you, you talked a tiny bit, you just touched on being neurodivergent, which I am super excited to talk about because I am a fellow neurodivergent human. Um, Neurodiverse podcast. I, yes. 
Kira's not diagnosed with anything, but I am here to speak for her. Something's going on in her <laughs> we'll brain. We'll diagnose you, Kira. There be. <laughs> I, uh, I diagnose I, you queer. I have no answers, I told you. I have no answers. <laughs> I don't need another question. Prescription for gay pills is ready to pick up at CVS. Um, I only take half a pill, I guess, then. Or where does pan fall? I have an argument to make. I mean, Oh, there's there's no level of gay. You're just gay. Yeah, straight up. You just love people. Yeah, I, I dig it. that. I dig that. Yeah, I don't really care what I am, who I, whatever. Doesn't matter. I'm chilling. Uh, Lizzie, do you have a question about neurodivergence? <laughs> do I have a question about neurodivergence? Yeah, um, I do actually, because I feel like it does. Um, so I have ADHD. And I feel like that played a huge part in being able to hyper-focus on training at certain points of um, like cycles, whether it's, you know, whether it was erg season or on the water season, um, I found that kind of the ebbs and flows of life, I would get into this hyper-focus of like, I need to work out and I need to, I need to do it and nothing will absolutely stop me. Like, I think I worked out every single day when I was in New Zealand without fail because I needed to do it. And I forced myself to do it every single day, whether I was like on a quick trip somewhere with, with the group, like I would be up at six and I would go for a run before everybody got up because I was like, I have to do this. I'm training, which like maybe is unhealthy, but also I think it's what I needed at the time. And that was, like I said, an example of that hyper-focus. And now I put a lot of that into coaching and kind of get into the ebbs and flows of things. Um, and then when I'm on something like I I'm on it and I can't stop. So I don't, I, I'd like to hear your experience on that through your time. Yeah. I am also um, in the ADHD camp and the older I get and the more research I do, the more I think that I probably had, I been born and socialized a boy um, probably would have been diagnosed also with autism spectrum disorder somewhere in there. But I think what, what makes it interesting, both as an athlete and especially as a rower is how much, rowing especially at the like high school level tends to draw in like kind of neurodivergent kids because it is a sport that a lot of people come to a little bit later in their teen years and it is normally I like what I've witnessed and what I remember from my own experience tends to bring in a lot of the kids who couldn't cut it at other sports like there are plenty of there are plenty of rowers who are like fantastic athletes on all levels but it also has a tendency to like just collect a lot of kids who like don't have a lot of body body knowledge and like kinetic understanding of themselves yet. And like a lot of kids with ADHD um, and autism have a tendency to fall into that camp. And so both remembering how I adjusted to like in that hyper-focus that you talk about, um, like I remember specifically being like, oh my God, I'm finally good at something because I could never catch a ball, but I could like make myself like smash my head into a wall a million times in a row and be fine. Um, And I'm still that way, but I remember like how much I loved like the sense of getting positive reinforcement, which um, there's a statistic out there that's like a child with ADHD will receive around 20,000 more negative comments and check my mouth on that. That's not the exact quote um, by the time they turn 12. And so like confidence is a massive issue for like neurodivergent kids. And I feel like I see it a lot in both of my jobs, but um, it's really like, rewarding and rowing to be able to find spaces and ways that I can approach kids who are like clearly like processing information differently or at a different rate um, than their peers. Um, 
and like kind of draw out confidence in them and draw out a sense of self-efficacy. And like, it's definitely a challenge. I'm not saying that I'm good at it yet, um, but it is really like exciting to be able to like work with those kids and see like how they adjust and how they encode information. And it's also like a very constant barometer of how well I'm like being mindful with myself because I am, I don't have a therapist and I don't have regular medication. I am just doing my best without health insurance. <laughs> um, and as one does, right? In their early twenties. And so like there are days when I get off the water and I'm like, wow, I wasn't as focused on that as I should have been. And I didn't adjust to what somebody else was trying to tell me because they're a 14 year old boy. And so like that learning process, I feel like a lot of the time it's me learning as much as they are because I'm learning how to communicate things and communicate praise and communicate like, like that was unsafe what you just did. And I need you to know that it's not funny unsafe, <laughs> but it's like unsafe, unsafe. But yeah, there, there are a lot of things and I've just touched on like the broad spectrum of um, what comes to mind immediately. But I do really think that rowing is an important space for like neurodivergent diver people and the neurodivergent people that love it just because it is such a bizarre sport in a lot of ways. Yeah. All of that resonates me in like every single, you know, resonates with me in every single way, especially the like, yeah, you know, I maybe not, I wasn't as focused as I should have been, or I didn't give as much feedback as I thought I, you know, I wanted to just, and, and I don't know, this is something I, I also have spoken about with another one of my ADHD, fellow ADHD rowing coaches was she was like, sometimes I will literally say stuff ba like backwards and like get confused, <laughs> like when I'm, when I'm looking at them and I try and tell them something and then I'm like, wait, hold on. I need to just reiterate everything real quick. Let's just take like backtrack. So <laughs> I've definitely found myself doing, doing things like that. And, um, it, it is such a, an interesting space of, of neurodivergent people. I mean, the community is so big yet so small mm -hmm. in such a strange way. And like the amount of interesting people that you meet, like, I don't know. Everyone brings something different. I don't care. What are your thoughts? For once, I have not that many. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I don't share this experience that you guys do. And it's actually really cool to hear that you're able to kind of find this space for you in the way that, you know, I can relate to that and saying like, I found a space for myself in rowing. But I think it's, it's so interesting to hear you both talk about how this sport can serve as such a like positive space for people who struggle to find that. We'll talk about the negative. I'm going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was going to be my next question, I guess, is um, where do you see there? We can reframe it as coaches do in a space of where do you see where rowing has room to grow along the neurodivergent scale of, of, of making this a space where athletes of any, every ability can especially at the youth level where inclusivity is should absolutely be one of the pillars of the sport you know wh where do you see and I don't expect you to have answers I don't expect you to have full opinions about you know talking for everyone's experiences but from your own you know wh where do you see the gaps uh, from my own personal experience as a high school high school rower I started rowing um in uh, Virginia Beach, which if anyone doesn't know, has one of the biggest naval bases or military bases in the possibly the world. 
um, but at least the country. Um, and the coach that I rode under was in his 70s, isn't it? What, yeah, was in his 70s. He was a former Marine and he was incredibly old school. And on top of that, he was in early stages of dementia. Um, <laughs> and I like, and like that's its own issue. But what I noticed a lot. What I've noticed a lot as I've gotten older and gotten into different rowing spaces is the amount of like old world prestige that this sport has and the amount that it frequently leans on that like old world like stoicism that can be so isolating to people who are not automatically doing well in a space. And I know that like during the times when I was like on it when I was on when I had it together I was the top of my team I like was like super successful I was constantly getting what I wanted right out of the space and then it got harder and I started struggling more and it like I got into later like upper grades of high school I was taking AP classes and I was not doing well in them and as like my mental health like started to take a dip like the rapidity with which my coaches turned away from me was jarring in a way that I didn't heal from for a very long time and I think that that is reflected in a lot of rowing teams unfortunately because it is such an old sport and it is such a like stoicism internal strength intrinsic motivation based sport there's so much like culture and like mythos I think around being tough and like impregnable kind of that when people have problems, um, which everyone does, it's really, it's harder, I think, than it is even in like many, many other sports, specifically in rowing, to reach out for help. Because like, if you're on an erg, you can look very easily at somebody's erg and be like, you're not trying that hard, <laughs> which is not true, right? Or if something's going wrong in the boat and everyone can feel it and it affects everyone, everyone's mad at the kid who's not focused that day. I think that there are a lot of spaces where rowing can get very isolating very fast if you're having an off day or if you're having a lot of off days in a row. Um. Yeah and that like that experience I'm sure embodies so many other kids experiences with just being in an atmosphere that's not catered to them right we're we're told that you know from four years old and onward that we have to sit at a desk and stare up at a, a professor or teacher spewing things at us. And that's just not how our brain works, right? Just, it doesn't mean that we're stupid, right? I mean, millionaires and business women and, you know, business people, celebrities, successful people all have issues or some type of neurodivergence. And they're still really successful because they've essentially like hacked their brain and figured out what works for them, right? It's not we're not meant to be honestly like sexuality. It's not a box. Like we don't want to be put into a box. We want to explode and be creative. And I feel like a lot of people with ADHD probably are more extroverted than most. And, you know, we're kind of shamed for that too sometimes. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of that, like what you said before with the negative comments, I make it such a point after every single practice or after a piece or something to just tell my athletes that they're doing a great job and to keep up the good work. Like no matter what, like even if they're having a really crappy day and I'm pissed at them for something, I'm still like, okay, good job Eagles. Like keep it going. Whether, even if it's like the tone, the delivery, but like 
that stoicism in our sport is definitely detrimental to a lot of kids who are a little bit different and who yeah. learn differently. Um, so um, I, I really appreciate, appreciate you bringing that up. I always make a point at the end of like a hard practice or like a practice that I think like looked frustrating, at least from the outside to like pull my boats aside and be like, look, in case nobody said it before, what you're doing is really hard. <laughs> like, and you're trying to learn something that is very difficult and like, it doesn't make sense for the body to do some of the things that I'm asking you to do. So like you're struggling with it and that struggle is good. So like kind of the same vibe. I love what you guys talk about. I just love listening to you talk, Meg. Um, <laughs> but I think um, a really cool point that you guys both touched on is like the role of the coach in the space, right? And we are all young, queer people coaches. <laughs> and I think it's kind of, it's really fun to exist in these spaces with our peers and our friends and just talking about, here's how we felt the sport failed us. How can we make sure that doesn't happen again? Um, and I, I don't know, I'm not going to say our friend group is the only group that does this because that's just not true, but how often, you know, I sometimes wonder like how had our coaches, you know, had those conversations and the coaches we've had ne negative experiences you know, with, you know, have they had those conversations? And I think it actually leads pretty well into something else I would love to talk to you about Meg is trauma informed coaching. This is something, you know, that I think is kind of having its, its moment in the spotlight in a lot of research realms. The institution I currently work at has a lot of really great undergraduate research opportunities for sport and social change. And one of the groups of undergrad students is researching this. And we actually had a CRCA call, which is the Collegiate Rowing Coaches Association. It was, it was a three-day three Zoom meeting seminar, basically, in trauma-informed coaching. And it was not enough. <laughs> I will tell you, it was not nearly enough information. It did not. It basically skimmed the surface. And I could feel everybody wanting a little bit more. We all, we all want the best for our athletes. But I think this idea that people are coming to the space with, with narratives already pre-written in their heads because of their experiences that we don't fully understand is a new concept to a lot of coaches. So, you know, you have a very unique perspective in that you work in a space alongside with coaching that has a lot of trauma. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, you know, you are working with people who uh, I can't even imagine their experiences, but talk a little bit about trauma-informed coaching and your thoughts around that. I know you have many a thought. Yes. Um, I was not involved in that seminar because I am not, a college student right now and I would really love to get back into the space of like actually like research researching sports psychology I'm really hoping to do that um much more heavily in the next couple of years because I think it's just just there's a lot there and I think that there's a lot to be discovered there because resiliency I think in sport is really really important being able to teach and train that is very important and I guess I'll start kind of with like where we're at right now. This is a very bizarre time for trauma-related re study because the entire world, as, as everybody knows, as has been said dozens of times before, just went through a mass traumatic experience. Like everybody at the same time experienced pretty much the same basic trauma, which was obviously COVID. And like we experienced different facets of it, different faces of it, different like versions of it, different levels of it even. But 
especially the young people that we interact with, where me, Lizzie, Kira all have most of our gray matter grown in uh, for the most part, myself a little bit less than them, but you know. Calling us old. Yes. Did you just, did you just age us? Yes, you did. <laughs> Listen, I just got finished saying we're young coaches. Can I finish? I'm also way? older than both of you. You're older than me? Yeah, I'm she 25. is. 25. I'm also 25. I'm when did you turn 25? Nice. Can we stay on topic? Go no, ahead. we have ADHD. I mean, I don't, but like. <laughs> but you, she did just call us old, so. When is your birthday? Mine? Yeah. August 26th. Oh, you're just before me. Oh, that hurts. Virgo, baby. We're both Virgos. But really a Leo at heart. I know. All right. It's We're not. Sure. Anyway. As I was saying, I interact with a lot of kids who, um, both in rowing spaces and outside of them, have very little frustration tolerance, which is a like big word to describe. Like you just, it's really, really difficult to problem solve when things get hard. And like that sounds like a mean thing to describe as person, but like that is a skill that is learned when you are in like that 12 to 18 range and if you don't learn it it's going to have like massive effects on you leading forward into life and rowing is really good at teaching frustration tolerance but I meet and interact with a lot of kids who are not rowing and there is this bizarre thing where they don't even have it's I've noticed it's wildly difficult for teenagers at specifically this moment in history I think to picture a future that they actually want to exist in mental health like disorders are some people say that they're on the rise because of COVID. Some people say that it is more of a like exacerbated problem that was silent before and is obvious now because of all of the issues with school. You could explain it any way you want. This is an epidemic of its own. There are just a lot of very, very unhappy kids in the world right now. And that's really scary and sad. Like what does that say about what we've been doing, right? But it's also something to be said. There's also something to be said for the fact that there is a lot of work to be done right now. And that work needs to be groundbreaking. That work needs to be um, passion driven. And I think that rowing has a like stands to be not to not to be on a soapbox about it. But I think that uh, rowing stands to teach a lot of these skills that have been kind of cut out of their everyday lives over the past two years. Like I have a few kids who on a daily basis, and of course, like the high school is stressful at any time. Um, but I have a few kids who come up to me on a daily basis and they're like, I'm stressed. I don't feel like I can do this. And I don't think that like, or like I didn't sleep last night or I like haven't eaten today or any number of things. PSATs are scary. And it, it like a lot of the time, like all I can say to them is just like, me too. I am also scared. You're gonna do great though. And I am going to be with you every step of the way, unless it's a regatta. <laughs> You're but, on your own out there, kids. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting to see, like, like, I have one boy in particular who is so nervous all the time. He's afraid of his own shadow, but he's so good at what he does. And it's interesting because I remember being that kid to a certain extent. And I try really, really hard to modulate the way that I react to him and the way that I like try to motivate him. There have been pieces where I've come up to him 
because there's just a look on his face that like tells me that he's not doing so hot. And I like, there have been times where I've sat in front of him and said, like, if you need to go only 80%, if you need to like put the brakes on just a little bit, that is allowed. I am giving you permission to take it easy for a couple of strokes or for this piece. And frequently that leads to him going faster. And I think that that is in and of itself, like very powerful. Just like the fact that so many kids that I interact with feel like they're carrying the world on their shoulders. And when you just tell them that they're, that they don't have to, that they can like let a little bit of it go, that they can fail a little bit and that this is a safe place to fail, they flourish. And I love that. I also love that. I mean, it's true. It is a place that they can fail. Like high school yeah, and college. Yeah. High school and college, it, it, everything always feels like the end of the world. You get a 50 on a math test. Like, are you kidding me? That was me like every week. I hate math. I'm bad at it. <laughs> but I'm here and I'm doing what I love and I'm happy. It's not the end of the world. And the more I think that coaches can communicate those types of things that like, it's okay to be scared and it's okay to take that leap and fail, take that leap, right? Or take, or take what you need. Yeah. I love that. Oh, I think that's also just such a, yeah, it's, it's such a wholesome, like beautiful thing about coaching juniors, right? Like I get to coach juniors during the summer and it's absolutely one of my favorite parts of the year. Don't get me wrong. I adore the team I'm with right now. They're wonderful. And when they eventually listen to this, they already know that I'm obsessed with them, but <laughs> I getting to coach juniors during the summer and getting to be one of the first, which is tragic. One of the first people to be like, did you know that you don't have to PR every single 2k? And they're they're the look on their faces. I'm like, guys, if you PR every single 2k, you are not training, right? Like <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to fail. It's okay to try something and not have it work out. That's the only way you're going to know where the edge is. And I just remember having one athlete during the summer who was just aghast at the fact that she felt valued. And I was like, you are a teenager. How have you made it to this far without feeling like you were valued on a team? How is our junior athlete system failing these kids this heavily? How? And knowing that we all just came out of this time we are not even out of it yet, but <laughs> we're all quite different on the other side of this. And, you know, even at the collegiate level, talking to other coaches who are just struggling to find ways to connect with their team because they just, they, they find the shift in character so different post COVID dare I say post, cause we're still not out of it, but that we, we have department meetings. We have group chats with all of the uh, coaches about how can we interact with athletes they're, they're just a little different now and it's it's allowing it to have this trauma-informed coaching lens where it's like yes this awful thing happened and yes their brains are wired a little bit differently because they spent two years some of them alone even just a couple of months completely alone with just their families which god help all of us um, <laughs> Like <laughs> I was at home with my parents for a month and, you know, I do love them. My mom recently discovered podcasts and should she ever hear these mom, you're, you're great, but you know, a month. And I had the autonomy to be able to be like, Alex and I are leaving. We are going to her apartment in the city. Good luck. We'll see you on the other side. Love you. Keep in touch. Teenagers didn't get to do that. 
you know, like, so I think allowing them that grace to be different and to be like, Hey, you don't have to go all out all the time. It's okay to fail. Building that resiliency is, is probably the most important job we have right now. I dare you. I mean, I like, I don't really care. It's about like winning. I'm working with novice boys. I'm just trying to get them to have a safe row. Like if everyone comes back from, from the water, from a rega- from a race and they're all in the boat, I'm thrilled every time. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, you're alive. <laughs> um, and like, there are a few of them who like, and it's so funny because like the kids, like it's not, there's not a whole lot of like authority like lines on my team because the head coach has been with the team for like longer than I've been alive so it's a very close-knit structure and I've got a few kids who come up to me and they're like why are you trying so hard with this one kid or like so and so I'm like first of all how dare you um second of all like just leave them alone like I have a few kids who are very very much not with it but they get out on the water and like, they, like, or I put them in a, like a 1.5K situation and they pull faster times than the rest of the team. They care. They want to be there. They just don't have the technique. And if they don't have the technique right now, we'll work on it. But they go out on the water and they have a good time. And I have conversations with them and they're like engaged with me. And if they're not engaged all the time with the rest of their classmates, I don't really care. It is a different, you're right. It is, they are different now. And like, I'm different now and we're different now. And I think that like, if we can give ourselves grace, then God, we should be giving teenagers grace. We should be giving people who don't know how to be people yet, at least as much grace as we expect for ourselves. And I think that it is sometimes like, that is sometimes like a concept that people have to have explained to them. And I think that that's absurd. Um, I work with a lot of school administrators in both of my jobs again, and some of them are jaded. incredibly jaded and they like kids are young boys are diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder at such a high rate and it is a straight shot into the prison system oftentimes because if you come into a school and you already have ODD on your like IEP or 504 then everyone is approaching you as if you are the problem and if every if every adult that you've ever talked to in your 14 years of existence has approached you as if you are a bomb then what are you going to be anyway that's a rant for a different podcast I loved it but Lizzie I'm interested in your thoughts around this too well part of not to take away from your beautiful mic drop moment Meg I think that was absolutely incredible yes and worth unpacking discuss it with your friends off the podcast. But (laughs) I think one of the hesitancies around kind of employing a lot of the trauma-informed coaching practices that we learned in the CRCA Mm -hmm. talk was actually a lot of the high-performance teams, like the really competitive Division I coaches saying, okay, but what about their performance? And they weren't quite seeing the fact that you need a psychologically safe space to have high functioning athletes. So Lizzie, I'm curious your thoughts around this. Like you're, you're coaching with the division one program right now. And, you know, Meg and I, we wrote it one. So we all have a lot of interesting thoughts, I'm sure around this, but where, why thoughts? Yeah. You know, to be honest, I think we do really create a space that hopefully allows these athletes to be vulnerable. I don't like to be taken advantage of in that kind of scenario though, which I think 
as a young coach, I'm still trying to kind of toe that line of being like, okay, yes, I, I absolutely understand. And I want to work with you and help you and do everything that we possibly can. But at the end of the day, like I'm a coach, I'm here for you and I want you to do well. And I am such an advocate for mental health and I will like unabashedly take that to my grave. Like that's, I, I want my athletes to feel safe, but I'm not, I'm not like a, a mental health professional. You know, we, we can refer athletes to sports psychs, which we do. And whether they take our advice or not, you know, that's, that's kind of on them. Like we do want to give them that autonomy to be able to grow themselves. And I know it's hard when you're 18, 19, 20, like I, I didn't, I feel like I didn't grow up and like really get stuff until I got out of college. I didn't realize like maybe something that I did in college was stupid because maybe that's, I just wasn't like thinking in that way yet. But yeah, I, I think the space that we've provided definitely, I hope allows our athletes to be vulnerable and still go fast in that environment. It's, is it frustrating right now that we can't quite figure out our lineups and have two boats that are the same exact speed a hundred percent at the end of the day, I think our culture is really good and it's growing and the team has depth and the girls I hope are happy from what I can tell. Like we have a great time and I have a blast coaching no matter what boat that I have. And I think all, all four of us have had, have definitely created a space where we're, we're kind. I mean, BC's motto, like BC rowing's motto is work hard, be kind. And that's something that, I try to live by every single day and anytime I'm communicating something that's maybe a little bit not fun or negative like sending out seat racing results like I'm gonna I'm the one sending that out you know for my crews that I coach and um, I may have to be the villain sometimes I want to be the villain but I don't know if I get to be <laughs> like I want them to like when I do send out those results right I, I always make sure to put like if you have questions like ask me if you want to know why this happened, ask me, just don't be a problem. We always were like, our big thing is like, be a positive or be a neutral. But if you're a negative, cut it, just stop it. You know, you know, like generally, you know, when something is right and something is wrong or when you're not being the best teammate. So either be a positive or be a neutral. Like there's, you have two options. There's no three here. So um, I actually, I want to challenge you a little bit on that. Oh, do, do, I'm, go ahead. I'm going to, we, we read a really, and this is not even for grade, but we read a really interesting piece of research that basically argued that attitude and effort and energy are non-controllables, which is something that kind of goes against a lot of what coaching world has always said, right? Where it's like, the only thing you can control is how you respond to a situation, some people argue that you can't. So I think I'm, I'm not even, I think what you're saying is so like, I think you're right on. I think you're like getting there. I, but I think saying like, you know, if you're just, if you're in a negative headspace, just knock it off. Like not, not necessarily. That's how I interpreted what you said. But if I was your athlete and I heard that, I'd be like, well, sometimes I can't help it. And sometimes I, my emotions are happening to me and I don't have the tools yet. Like I'm, I'm doing the therapy. I'm getting there. Or like, I don't know what my resources are, but I think, I think a lot of coaches get caught up in this idea of like, well, they're just lazy. Like they're choosing not to show up today. And, you know, I'm sure Meg, you can speak to this a little too of like, well, do you understand the circumstances that led them to this moment? 
do you not understand? You don't know. We don't know the narratives going on in our athletes' heads. So I actually almost want to challenge your conception of that, of saying like, but what if, what if, what if attitude, energy, and effort are not controllables? I agree with you to a certain extent. I think if it's a, if it generally, so I'll be, I'll, I'll clarify a little bit. It's more of like a, a constant negative, have okay. bad days, have bad days. Like we understand that. Like this morning I was coaching a boat and I literally was like, you guys need to wake up. Like I know that it's 7 30 AM and I absolutely know that you're tired and you have finals, but let's wake up. And then, you know, after a little bit, I, I like pulled up to them and we had a chat and I was like, okay, like, what do you guys need today? Do we need to go in? Do we need to stretch? Like, it's supposed to be kind of an easier day. Like, tell me what you need because I know that you're stressed physically and mentally. So like, talk to me, let's communicate. We talked and then they were like, you know what? We've, d- we've been out here a little while. Can we go in? And I was like, sure. We've got about 45 minutes left to practice. Our practices are like, our slots are pretty long. So I was like, let's go upstairs, stretch. Let's break it down. Let's kind of talk and you know how we can, you know, you can always, you could start on a bad note, but together, if you're kind of like, okay, you know what? take a breather, reset, have a little bit of a good day, then that's a good day on, on all accounts, I think. And I bet you made them faster today because you didn't make them just push through it, which is where I think, I think that's where a lot of coaches get caught up where they're like, but the training plan. And you're like, the training plan doesn't leave room for emotion or nuance or humans. 100%. Meg, We're, do finals you period. We're finals, you know, it's a psychological sport too. Like, I think it's, I was having uh, I don't know I don't remember where but somebody was showing me like a training plan for like a varsity eight and they were like what level of rowing do you think this was and there were like a bunch of pauses and drills and they were rowing by fours and threes and like we were like I don't know like a varsity eight for like division one college and they were like this was before they went to the olympics the varsity eight in the olympics and um I think the point that they were trying to make was that like at any level of rowing, there has to be space for like reflection and like taking a step back. At every level of rowing, you're going to have days where you're like rowing by fours or rowing by sixes. And a lot of people think that the like the mark of elitism is always to be like the most balanced boat, the most synced up boat. But like there are days where like, regardless of your effort level, sometimes nine people just cannot make that happen. And that's not, that has nothing to do with their ability or their like skill or their desire to be there. Um, It's just basic human error. That's just how those things work. And I think kind of to your original question about like the like hesitation of HP teams to like adopt like trauma focused or like practices. I think it comes comes back a lot to like overall and over time resilience because you can make a very mentally ill person very fast. I am living proof of it. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I stopped training after college because I stopped taking care of myself and I wasn't taking my- care of myself in college. There was just nothing to like force, like I just had to train while I was in college. And when I got out, I was still mentally ill, but there was nothing keeping me on the grindstone. And so I took a step back and I am a million times better for it. I have my period back. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Natural body processes doing their thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so proud of her. So before I feel like we should move into our uh, repeat questions, unless you guys have anything else, I do, Meg, would li- I would like to hear about your queer experience in rowing. 
yeah, I like, I think like by comparison to a lot of the people you've had on the podcast, I would probably qualify still as like a baby gay, which is so I love baby gays. Hi, it's me. So sweet. Because it, and this is so embarrassing. My first like genuine like queer space was the Temple Rowing team. <laughs> rowing has in the last couple of years been the only space where I've like been kind of openly the most like authentic version of myself, which is very funny. But I do think that it has shaped a lot of like what I like view my queerness as and like like where it comes from and like what I value about it. Um, I love being in spaces with other women who are like tough and masculine in ways. I think of like a big part of the discomfort that I felt living in the South and living in Virginia was how many women I think found my presence offensive just because of the amount of space I take up in a room. Just both because I have really broad shoulders and also because I'm loud and have a tendency to be kind of a bull in a china shop. And rowing has never made me feel that way, the way that other, other spaces do. Um, women in rowing, and I actually had a conversation today where somebody was like, oh my God, you're a rower. I feel like women in that sport are so much more self-possessed and so much more confident than in like almost any other sport. And I don't know what it is. And I was like, I don't either, but it's true. And I think that that has been incredibly empowering. Tell them that you were obsessed with Alex. You can admit it. <laughs> That's <such> an attack. <laughs> yes, yes, I was obsessed with Alex. She's the, the coolest, scariest butch I've ever met. And I was very, like, very not, I was obsessed with her before I knew her. And, like, I would go on her Instagram yeah. and I would show my girlfriend at the time. I was like, this is her and her girlfriend. And they're very cool <laughs> and very scary. And I don't know if I'll ever meet the other one. But... <laughs> Me, I'm dead. That's so good. And then me and the other girl ended up breaking up, and I hid out at Alex and Kira's house for that entire summer to hide. Fair enough. That's my wife. That's my wife. Another one. (laughs) Essentially, I love that. What a a (laughs) cute little queer experience. Hey, what do you identify as? Before we keep going, I realize I never asked you that. Do you baby. identify? <laughs> I guess. Are I'm you bi- identified? I guess I'm bisexual, but like there are a lot of t- there are a lot of nights where I sit up and ask myself, "Am I a lesbian who just like really really needed attention from men because I have daddy issues?" But the number of times I've texted Alex that question and she's told me to shut the fuck up, I've learned. <laughs> that's my wife (laughs) that's her wife (laughs) (laughs) I'm also like very very she they very big on the they I am comfortable in my in in I in the she anymore as my father says the she she (laughs) <laughs> he tries so hard that is so important he tries so hard he just doesn't get it oh it's nice that he tries yeah he goes you know the she she and i was like you mean she her pronouns <laughs> we should have her dad on this podcast my dad would like very queer get us like pulled off the internet 
from just being not self-aware of what he says because he the man is also super adhd and has no filter he's an old italian man from the bronx but grew up in the bronx in the 50s and 60s that man that's terrifying (laughs) good for him (laughs) he looks like he came straight out of the godfather well speaking of movies meg our first repeat question what character was your gay awakening this is going to be confusing because I realized that it was Jim Hawkins, who is a man, but I love him as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> what? And or I have like, see, this is the bisexual experience. Okay. I have never looked at somebody and known whether or not I wanted to fuck them or just be them. I agree with that. But like, like normally what happens for me is I look at like very pretty men like Gerard Way and, and I'm like, that's, I don't know if I want to kiss his little face or if I just want to dress that way and cut my hair that way. So. You could pull on me. You've had short hair before. I've had short hair more times than yeah. you. Yeah. It's, it's been three years, but okay. Meg actually owns short hair. I don't know if you know. Oh, had, she, owns, had, she owns the shop for short hair. I, I, <laughs> Meg's Bob, TM. <laughs> Go get your chops there. <laughs> get a salad next door. I gave Kira a haircut once, and it was so bad she cried. So maybe don't. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it wasn't bad. I'm just hypersensitive to haircuts. I think. Didn't tell me that. <laughs> I know. He just handed me scissors and thought it was going to be a good time. It usually <laughs> should be. <sighs> Meg, what's your favorite boat to row and why? I have to say, I think it's a single because I am, at the end of the day, kind of an individualist, which is the worst thing to be as a rower, right? That's why they make singles. Yeah. Yeah. Yes and no. It could, it could go either way. I'm I'm very excited for your answer to this. If you weren't rowing, what sport would you want to be really good at? MMA. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I'm currently training for a marathon, so it should be that. But like running is so boring. Um, I just oh god, I want to drop kick somebody so bad. I want to knock somebody's teeth in. But I'll take classes with you when you move to Boston. Let's go. All right. Dude, yeah. There's like a kickboxing place like right around the corner from my house. Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. We host a gay or ghost podcast fight between you two. <laughs> the gay or ghost showdown. <laughs> Lizzie, I they're not like, on a race. I would course. fight you any day of the week. <laughs> Girl, you can tackle me any day of the week. That's fine. <laughs> Fun fact, I used to have a crush on Megan then I met her. <laughs> crush on Lizzie and then I met her (laughs) I'm glad it's so mutual I feel like I was the middle ground between both of you I think it was you and Chloe and then we met each other and we were like this is wildly incompatible we're like we would actually light an entire room on fire and probably stand in it and be like this is cool (laughs) and the worst part is like you no you hit me up and then your friend and then Chloe was like looking between the text and me and then back at the text and Chloe didn't even know me at the time and she was like oh no this isn't it (laughs) (laughs) she was shipping she she shipped it for like a minute and then she was like no 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 
No, you're just one of the many people that I've been like, Meg, this one? <laughs> and been wrong. <laughs> so I'm a terrible wing woman person, if that's anything we're learning tonight. <laughs> Meg, what what race course has disrespect you and the most? Okay, this is a story. For anybody who knows me in real life, I have a gripping fear of um, any sunken water vessels. And one time when I was in my junior year of high school, I went to a race course in Delaware and I was all by myself in a single and I was rowing down the race course to like, it was like the day before and I saw this steamboat on the water and I was like, oh, that looks really old. And I got closer and it was a two level steamboat and it was halfway under the water and I almost capsized. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, so that's the one <laughs> it, like anybody who knows like yeah. I have to leave the, like I've never seen Titanic I um, can't watch Finding Nemo I, <laughs> is this a neurodivergent thing or are you just weird I think I like in a past like no I think this is like a life progression <laughs> thing <laughs> like, you were probably on the Titanic is what I'm hearing <gasps> Oh, because I'm like also obsessed with pirates and I'm I love pirates. I um are you my new best friend? No. No. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. I don't even I don't even make it on to Kira's notifications and I do a podcast with her. So I it's for emergency services, like emergency calls, Lizzie. I Kira's like one of my like um emergency contacts. So Lizzie, you're so important to me. Thank you for helping. I need so much positive reinforcement for one negative comment. I require about 70 positive comments. I will send them your way in 24 hours. I would like an entire email of beautiful things about Lizzie. Have you considered therapy? I am in therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Please. I've been in therapy since I was six. Aw, lucky. Yeah. And I'm being treated for my ADHD, but I often forget to take my Adderall. Well, on that note, um, thank you for joining us. Um, it's, it's been real. It's been fun. I don't know if it's been real fun. <laughs> it's been real fun. It's been real fun for me. But, this is my vibe. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm terrified of the chaos, but I'm going to lean into it. But uh meg thanks for being here i love you dearly like i will probably see you in the next couple days lizzie i'll see you on sunday both days saturday and sunday i'll see you on saturday and sunday um text me your coffee order that will be my retribution thanks again for tuning in to the gay ergos podcast if you like what you hear share with your friends follow like subscribe shoot me a dm shoot us a dm um we've got a lot of love recently so that's been really wonderful. Keep it coming. Stay fun. Stay queer. Make fast boats. Yes, queen. Yes, queen. Bleed, girl. Edit that out. That's coming out. I might leave it. Oh, leave bleed girl in. That is- <laughs> leave bleed girl alone.